Mace, we appreciate you so much for joining the conversation today. Plenty to discuss on this Wednesday. We first want to welcome you to Fox News Black Report. Now we're following the latest from one family who's suing the New York School District over racism and bullying. And it's been three years since that lockdown. We're talking about the impact COVID-19 still has on our community. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm Nicordelide Corte, plus the latest reparation efforts across the country and the black stunt woman who's taken Hollywood by storm. Mm. They're the stories that impact our people. Yeah, it's our news, our views, and our voice. So let's get into our big conversation for the day. The U.S. House may be divided, but when it comes to getting to the bottom of the origins of COVID-19, lawmakers are all on the same page. Now, the House voted unanimously to declassify U.S. intelligence information about what started a worldwide pandemic with a uh, 419 to zero vote. The bill now goes to President Biden's desk to be signed into law. This week marks the three-year anniversary since the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. U.S. intelligence agencies, however, are still divided over whether it started as a lab leak or if it came from animals. Experts say the true origin of the virus may not be known for years to come, if ever. Now that there's a bill to help get the country on a four-day work week, many experts are warning against it. Democratic mm -hmm. Representative Mark Takano of California reintroduced the bill that would make the 32-hour work week a national standard. Despite popular opinion, a financial strategist says a four-day work week is, quote, backwards economics. That's right. Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, says it would raise the cost of labor. He says employers will have to hire more workers, which could lead to driving up the cost of doing business. I don't know. I, I hope this remnant of the darkest days of the pandemic actually stays with us. Uh, and I hope it leads to, you know, less work hours, more hours with our families. I don't know. I guess see how it touches that paycheck. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Vice President Kamala Harris will travel to Africa later this month, becoming the most senior Biden administration official to visit the continent. Now, her trip comes as the administration seeks to further strengthen relationships with African countries as competitors like Russia and China have already made a lot of progress uh, in the region. Now, Harris is scheduled to visit three different countries, including Ghana, Tanzania, and she's going to end that week-long trip in Zambia before returning back to D.C. This is Harris's first visit to the continent since becoming our vice president. The FBI has released their annual report on hate crimes and have found that black people are, surprise, surprise, the most victimized. Mm -hmm. According to the report, the FBI registered over 10,000 cases of hate crimes in 2021, up from 8,000 in 2020. The number of anti-black hate crimes increased by 14% to a little over 3,200. Anti-Asian bias events grew by 167% uh, to 746 cases. And the FBI also identified nearly 1,000 victims of anti-Hispanic hate crimes across nearly 700 occurrences, or nearly one victim for every 70,000 Hispanics in the United States. So the proof is in the pudding. 
And so, you know, you see these stats, these reports continue to be released with even more information. So for me, why the slow drag and why the hesitancy with calling a spade a spade when these cases continue to pop up uh, in the news case in point, um, Rasheem Carter down in Mississippi, mm -hmm. where you have authorities tiptoeing around, oh, is this a hate crime? Is it not a hate crime? When all of the uh, details um, with what this uh, group allegedly uh, did to him are absolutely horrific and for that to be even in question as to is it a hate crime or not if you you can google it and read some of the details that people have been talking about across social media uh, found dismembered um, you know allegedly being fed body parts to wild dogs how could this not immediately uh, call someone to think you know hate crime especially when you look at you know black male white male uh, he was complaining calling out to his mom felt he was being harassed and chased I mean, I mean, you know, here's the proof in, in reports like this. Yeah, and supposedly, you know, we have our, um, supposedly we have our uh, data getting a whole lot better. Uh, the FBI data mm -hmm. uh, is really, um, uh, our FBI data is really uh, improving uh, significantly. Uh, and uh, I really think that, uh, uh, you know, with that, without that data, you know, no data, no justice, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, with that data, uh, we're able to zero in mm -hmm. on where those hot spots are. Uh, but you're right, you know, there's a lot of hate going around. Um, and we see it on our, our school campuses. Mm -hmm. We see very hostile learning environments for our kids. That's right. And so I'm not surprised that it's showing up, um, but I'm, I'm glad that, that, that we, have, we have the data mm -hmm. uh, to be able to, to back up these claims that people have previously just dismissed as anecdotal. Sure, and speaking of hate crimes, especially on our school campuses, a New York husband and wife are suing the city's, New York City's Department of Education on behalf of their children. Amos Winbush III and his wife Tiffany filed the suit in February saying their children have endured unimaginable racism, physical and emotional trauma during they, their time uh, at Peck Slip School. That's a public elementary school in the Manhattan area. The family claims that despite related complaints, school administrators allowed the mistreatment of the Winbush children to continue uh, semester after semester. And joining us now to provide more insight into the years of mistreatment and racism experienced by those children is the father, Amos Wimbush III, and his attorney, Lance Clark. Welcome to Fox Soul's Black Report, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. So, Thank you for having us. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for being here. So, Mr. Amos, it's mentioned in the Essence magazine article that in the lawsuit uh, and also in the lawsuit that this bullying and bigotry has happened for semesters. What was the last straw that led you and your wife to file a lawsuit? The last straw was uh, when my daughter came home and uh, told our, uh, my wife and I that um, a student in her class said that slaves were dumb. And that followed by uh, within the same week, a student spitting in my five-year-old's face. So that was, uh, it, 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 was, it was the last straw for us over and over and over with no resolution, with no one wanting to talk to us, with no system in place we had no other option but to file the lawsuit spitting in your five-year-old's face what was that like hearing your five-year-old come back home and 
and explain that to you as best they could in their five-year-old words. The sad part about it is they didn't believe him. And they pulled the cameras and called us and said that it was an unprovoked attack. And this is the same student who uh, just several months earlier uh, threatened to kill my son as well as kicked him in his, in his stomach and his abdomen, which we then had to take him to the hospital because that, that evening he would not eat. He was complaining of his stomach ache. But earlier in that day, the school said that he was totally fine and it was not an issue. What would you say to people learning about your story for the first time, wondering, well, if this happened repeatedly, why continue to enroll your kids in the school? Yeah, I think the, the larger issue is not where we enroll our kids, but understanding that wherever we enroll our kids, this is going to happen. New York City has the most segregated school system in the country. Um, so at the end of the day, those questions would be asked, why did they not remove the kid? Remove the kids and go where? And at what point in time do we stop running when our child and our children are going to experience it in the new school, do we pick up and run then? And you know, it's teaching our children that when adversity is confronted, um, that they would need to pick up and run. And we want them to believe that they have the power to, to create change by just being present and, and sharing their voices. Lance, these are pretty startling uh, allegations. Uh, what has the school district said in response to what we're hearing from Mr. Amos? Nothing. Unfortunately, nothing. You would think that when you're dealing with some of society's most vulnerable people, children, that the school district, the first thing they would have done was reach out to council, reach out to Mr. Winbush to see what can we do you know, to fix it. It's been mind-boggling to us that the lack of response from the school district is telling in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, what advice do you have uh, you know, you know, what advice, you know, would you would you have for folks out there uh, that are in school districts, you know, including but not limited to New York City, uh, that are reticent, you know, about uh, making too much hay about what's happening with their kids in school? You can never make too much hay about what's happening with your children in school. These are your children. Whatever the teacher teaches the child, the child teaches the world. And historically in this country, black children have been undereducated and underprivileged and it allows them to be some of the most vulnerable citizens in our country. Children in and of themselves are vulnerable. A lot of them can't defend themselves, but brown children in and of themselves and the mistreatment towards brown children is astronomical because who comes to their defense? Who's going to save them? And the advice that I would give is stand firm, stand tall and fight. With Amos is doing is not only commendable but amazing because the question that we've been asked time and time again is the same question that was you know, posed here. Why would you leave your children in school? You know, running sometimes gets tiring. At some point you have to stand firm and stand tall and say this is not right and I'm going to demand accountability, I'm going to demand justice, and I'm going to demand change because we're cognizant that it's not just Amos Winbush's children who are going through this. I know that and he knows that. But this is to let these other families know that this is not okay. And the fact that someone who is 
doesn't look like you can tell you what is and is not racist and that these things are all in your head and what you're experiencing is not real. You know, these mind games that they mm-hmm. play with us and with our children, is it, it's offensive. And we're at the point now where we just have to call it for what it is and we demand better accountability and just treat him as if he was, treat his daughter if she was a regular white girl. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Amos, what do you want to come out of this lawsuit and in lieu of lending uh, uh, your kids uh, to this hostile learning environment, what educational alternatives are you and your wife actively considering? You know, we've, uh, we've been forced to battle with where we send our kids and the damage that it would cause to uproot them from a situation that's already traumatic and place them into another situation that could be worse and oftentimes would compile on that trauma. Um, We've had to remove our five-year-old from the school um, and he is now being homeschooled because he's expressed to us that he doesn't want to live and that he doesn't want to go back to the peg slip school and it's in our neighborhood it literally we can see it from every room in our apartment we've lived in this neighborhood for 18 years Mm -hmm. this is where we live we are active community members this is the fabric of new york city and if you have elements inside of New York City that says we're okay with diversity, just not in our backyard, Mm -hmm. that doesn't work because that's not America. Yeah. Mr. Amos, before we before we let you go, what advice do you have for families who may be in similar situations um, and don't know where to turn? I will tell you this, that um, incidents such as racism, bigotry, and indifference to it has risen between 2019 and the fall of 2022, just in District 2 where we are by 27%. So we recognize that we're not alone. We know that there are thousands of families that are going through the exact same experience. And the first thing that I would say is advocate for your children. We were told that we were advocating too much. And it was our children's job to advocate for themselves as if they hadn't already done so. We were told that what our children was experiencing wasn't racism, and then we got ignored. And it was only until we reached out to elective officials, and then those elected officials um, you know, reached out to the, the, the DOE, and they then said, Mr. Winbush, you're really articulate, and that can be scary to a lot of people. So when racism is brought to you, don't run, don't be afraid, go at it head on, and let them know that this is about right and wrong. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, thank you so much for for joining us. A big thanks to Mr. Amos Wimbush and uh, his attorney, Mr. Lance Clark. Uh, Keep fighting uh, the good fight and come back again anytime to give us an update on your case. Thank you so much for having us, brother. Keep the faith. 
All righty. Arizona's top educator is vowing to wage a war against critical race theory. Education Superintendent Tom Horn recently launched a hotline for people to report, quote, inappropriate lessons that detract from teaching academic standards. It's the end of that quote. Now, namely, uh, topics that could be considered uh, CRT or emotional support curriculum. Meanwhile, Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs vetoed a bill that would have banned the teaching of critical race theory in Arizona schools. This is a, it's a big deal and what a difference an election makes. You know, mm -hmm. not too long ago, Arizona had a Republican governor uh, who probably would have gone along with what the superintendent mm -hmm. uh, is trying to do. Um, and, you know, this is just another example of what we're seeing across the country, you know, where there there's these mounting efforts, you know, to uh, create an environment, mm -hmm. you know, where the idea of teaching black history the idea of teaching, you know, uh, LGBTQ history, mm -hmm. you know, is looked at as something that is unsavory or as something that, you know, folks need to be suspicious of. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. You know, at what length uh, are folks on the other side willing to go, you know, setting up a hotline to report teachers? What they should do because what not teaching because, in the classroom? Because not too long ago, as in February of 2022, Arizona was ranked one of the worst public school That's systems right. in the country That's at right. number 48 out of 50. And they were ranked based upon, I have it here, safety uh, of students, success, and the quality of education. And they all ranked uh, sub subpar, if you will. Very very much subpar, if you will. So how about you create a hotline where folks can call in and talk about how, how terrible Arizona's public school system continues uh, to rank across the board. That's what you need to focus in on. I think you're on to something. <laughs> well, in Pennsylvania, workers at one restaurant, they walked out after management announced new cocktails on the menu. Mm. The group of employees walked out of uh, Mella Kitchen in Mount Joy Township after they learned that the new drinks on the menu were gonna be called the Negro and the Caucasian, saying it made them all feel uncomfortable. What began with 16 staff members is now turned into 25 employees who have left the establishment. The drink decision allegedly came from the company Core Theater and Jack's Hard Cider, but, is, but was approved by Mila's Kitchen's owner, mm -hmm. Donald Hoffman. Well, obviously, the, the employees didn't want to drink to that. L li <laughs> listen, listen, um, there's just too much going on, like real for real stuff going on. Uh, these these, you know, folks being murdered by police, you know, our, our missing and exploited children, the hate crimes we just been talking about. We just had a family on who was, you know, uh, fighting to, uh, for their children's survival and mental well-being. This foolishness here, you know, uh, you just have to, you know, mark it, you know, and be aware of, of what is happening and the consciousness and the ridiculousness of people to think this owner to think that something like this would be okay. Yeah. Um, but then it's also a moment where you could just shake your head and maybe give it a laugh or two. Like what what would the Negro drink, uh, what would it taste like? What would it consist of? Of course, you know, we would start with dark liquor. Would it be brown liquor? Yeah, brown liquor. That That is how I have to process it because uh -huh. it is so asinine to think that this would be okay. And then you just move on, you know? It just creates so much more division. It does. Right? It really does. At a time where, you know, we need more unity and so uh, I don't know hopefully the manager of that store is uh, rethinking little Hennessy, his choice. Little dark Hennessy, little Bacardi, <laughs> you start there. Coming up, All it's right. been three years since the pandemic. First, 
had us in lockdown, but many in the black community are still struggling. And when we come back, we'll speak to a doctor who will tell us what we can do to help ourselves and our community uh, when it comes to this virus. Stay close. You're watching Fox Souls Black Report. I want to welcome you back to Foxhole's Black Report. There's a recent study uh, that found black children face nearly three times more COVID-19 related deaths and twice the hospitalizations as white children. That's right. Lower vaccination rates among black children may contribute to these disparities. COVID-19 significantly impacted children, accounting for 18% of all cases. The research emphasizes the disproportionate burden on black and other children of color. Now, the study also suggests policy changes like modifying the children's health insurance program eligibility and expanding the child tax credit to address these disparities. And as we uh, mark the three-year anniversary of COVID-19, this recent study serves as a sombering reminder of the pandemic's impact on our community, particularly uh, on the black uh, community and uh, children of color. That's right. It's crucial that we continue to address these disparities to ensure that a more equitable future uh, as we move forward in our collective fight against the virus. The fight is not over. And today we have Dr. Abu Egu, a renowned expert in infectious diseases from Yale's School of Medicine, joining us to discuss the three-year anniversary of COVID-19. Welcome to The Black Report. Thank you for having me. Very yeah. happy to be here. If you don't mind, I'm gonna call you Dr. O because I have a tendency to lay um, people's <laughs> names to rest. So is that okay, Dr. O? <laughs> uh, you're in good company. Thank you so much. All right, uh, COVID-19, is it really over? I mean, people are still debating this. COVID-19 emergency declaration uh, billed uh, to end in May uh, 2023. Is this, is this, you know, what side of the argument are you on over, not over? Should we still be taking precautions, your thoughts? Um, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic for sure isn't over. I mean, we see that there's still like too many cases occurring every day, about roughly about 30,000 cases occurring in the U.S. And of those, about 2,700 get hospitalized and we're still seeing death rates in the 300 range uh, per day. And frankly, most of these um, estimates probably underrepresent the true scale of the pandemic. As you, you well know that, you know, lots of people are doing home tests and lots of tests are not uh, getting reported. And, and also, you know, some of the data on deaths uh, are not reported by certain jurisdictions in the U.S. So certainly the pandemic is not over regarding just community transmission. However, there is some good news and some silver lining because we're seeing a dissociation between cases and bad outcomes such as death because we now have effective vaccines uh, to protect against severe disease even if people get infected. And um, we also have, you know, better treatments. We've lost some along the way, but we have really defined what treatment works for that. And we even know how better to manage people when they're hospitalized, you know, when to use oxygen, put people on ventilators, etc. So we're in a better space now than we've been historically, but there's still um, a lot more work to be done. 
Dr. Abu Agu, uh, beyond the disparities in COVID-19 numbers, how has COVID-19's impact on the black community, how has it lingered? We hear stories in the news about long COVID and um, you know some of the other uh, issues related to COVID-19. Talk to us specifically about black folks. How has it lingered? So that's a great question, right? And frankly, we don't have all the answers yet. And I think we're going to be learning about these for months to years to come, just you know, the whole impact of COVID. And looking at the impact of COVID, not just uh, the direct effects from the disease itself, but like you mentioned, you know, long-term sequelae uh, from the disease, um, which includes long uh, COVID symptoms. And for some people, you know, those symptoms could persist and be devastating to the point where people are not able to return uh, back to work or at least the uh, their prior level of, of uh, functioning. Um, and so we've also seen that the higher rates of uh, mental health diagnosis in people who have recovered from uh, COVID-19. And, you know, part of it is all the uncertainty um, that happened uh, during the, the COVID era and just the fear and anxiety that that induces into individuals who are, who are vulnerable to the disease. We know it affected, you know, people's income and employment. And, you know, there have been some curious coincidences that have occurred, particularly among the Black community. We now see, for example, we knew that there were a lot more overdose deaths during the COVID-19 pandemic. And the recent trends are actually suggesting that black men specifically, uh, compared to their peers, are actually seeing much higher rates uh, per population of opioid-related deaths. And we also know that there are probably other uh, collateral harms that have occurred because we know that during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, routine health services were either delayed or disrupted, including things that disproportionately impact black communities, you know, such as HIV, reproductive health, et cetera, and even cancer screening. So we're really going to unearth mm. some of the um, significant injury that's occurred um, over time. Yeah, and one of the concerning issues um, with COVID-19 and the pandemic is that the vaccine uptake, which we, you know, that the vaccine has proven to be very effective, has uh, pretty been pretty poor uh, for black communities. What are some of the reasons, uh, your thoughts on why, and then how, how can these reasons be addressed? Yeah, so that's a concern, right? And something I've really been working very hard on over the past three years, right? Because I think it's a, a sad fact that the communities that are disproportionately impacted by the pandemic are the ones that actually struggle the most mm -hmm. with receiving a quite highly effective and safe uh, option to protect against uh, COVID-19. And so the good news, though, is if you look at the trends from earlier on in the pandemic to currently, it seems there have been a little bit of catch up among black communities because, you know, we found that when we use the term vaccine hesitancy is kind of a broad term that ranges from people who want to just delay vaccination to ensure that, you know, someone else gets it and safe or more data has accrued so that their confidence in its safety was fine. Some had concerns about safety in pregnancy. You mentioned the issue with kids, you know, um, if parents are hesitant, then you can imagine they're even more hesitant to even have uh, their kids vaccinated. But the good news is that we saw an uptick in mm -hmm. receipt of uh, vaccines by the black community, suggesting that our community is amenable to all the different strategies we did, you know, trying to make vaccines available, trying to engage communities to educate people about uh, the vaccines, and really, you know, trusted messengers like myself being a researcher in the field, um, really, you know, sending out that message and word to the community that uh, these were rigorously assessed mm -hmm. for safety and efficacy and they should be used. The sad part, though, is that we're seeing much more uh, newer uh, variants that are more 
transmissible and immune invasive, and the latest iteration of the vaccines and boosters still remain uh -huh. with very low uptake. Less yeah. than 20% of dangers across races have received that, and that's very concerning. Uh, real quick, uh, what lessons have we learned so far that will help to prevent the next public health emergency? You know, COVID-19 was a stress test. I think mm. it really showed us huge deficiencies in the way we uh, deliver healthcare, in the way we prepare uh, uh, for epidemics, and the way we respond to them when they do occur. In almost every aspect of the response, from disease surveillance, you know, to stay in touch with just the scale of the disease and new variants emerging, to making testing available, to making sure there's equitable access to treatments, like you have mentioned, the same thing with vaccines, we failed. So I think that this is really an opportune moment, and mm -hmm. and really has on earth are things that you know many of us have known existed all along you know as an as an hiv provider for example these are things we've always seen that communities of color are disproportionately impacted uh, by some of these things due to just their vulnerabilities so i think moving forward um, i think even just generating the data on the disparities i think really you know showcases uh, the disparities to the world and calls for action but we really need to deal with key issues like medical mistrust uh, medical uh, messaging uh, equitable access to health care, treatments, you know, institutionalized racism mm -hmm. and, you know, medical mistrust, all those things that are huge barriers to engaging the black communities in what I consider to be life-saving uh, interventions. And I hope moving forward that we address some of these. Indeed. Dr. O, thank you so much for your uh, time today and your insight. We appreciate your efforts and, and getting us and keeping us together. And uh, we'll definitely have to have you back to talk more about this as we continue uh, the fight against COVID-19. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me on Shining Light on this important issue. Absolutely. And we're going to stay with this uh, important issue as we look in on the third anniversary mm -hmm. of this uh, lockdown. You might remember it started with toilet paper shortages, that. you know, on in through actually the, the appearance of this uh, vaccine. And the pandemic has been quite a memorable period for many of us. However, sources say some details may fade over time due to the limitations of our memory. So our brains prioritize distinctive, emotionally charged events, which uh, makes the pandemic seem unforgettable. Yet information overload and everyday routines can make it difficult to hold on to these memories. And how society chooses to remember and commemorate the pandemic will influence its place in our collective mem memory for generations and I I'll say ages to come. What, what's the, what's the uh, fondest memory that you have from the pandemic and what's the worst memory you have? Uh, the the fondest memory is that I feel like spiritually the veil was lifted mm -hmm. and you really had to deal with that. You came face to face with who you are relative to who you want to be, mm -hmm. where you've been, where you're going. Um, and, and, and I think that was the beauty and some of the positivity in the pandemic. For me, some of the somber, darker moments was I had an aunt who was one of the part of that first round of victims in the nursing home uh, late March, early April, who passed on uh, from uh, the virus. Uh, there was no vaccine. Hospitals were twisted and, and medical folks were twisted on how to actually treat it. Um, and she was one of those first ones where my cousins had to say goodbye via cell phone, oh, wow. you know. So that was one of the darkest moments. And I had to come to work and still be yeah. an anchor, you know. Mm -hmm. So for me, what about you? Yeah, no, I mean, one of my fondest memories were, you know, sunset bike rides because mm -hmm. You know, we couldn't get into the gym, right? Mm -hmm. And so you had to, to make do and, you know, have as much physical activity as you could figure out. And mm -hmm. so doing that was a fond memory, something I, I grew to enjoy. Mm -hmm. But uh, very similar to you, you know, um, 
stories of you know people that I knew um, and there's one person in particular that died alone mm. uh, and uh, there are actually a number of people I know yeah. that died alone um, and you know that's a very unsettling thought I think it's a fear for a lot of people uh, you know as spending your last moments on earth by yourself yeah um, uh, let, let alone in the midst of, of a, a, a global pandemic uh, where it just feels like the world is upside yeah, down. Yeah, listen, so, my social media timeline became a rolling obituary. Yeah. Classmates, uh, high school friends, uh, friends from the neighborhood, neighbors. It was just, it was um, it was depleting. Yeah. It was depleting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, I think it showed how much we were connected to one another or needed to be more mm -hmm. connected to one another. Connectivity, yeah. I think, is another uh, a positive uh, lesson that hopefully came out of the pandemic, yeah. at least for me. And how much we still need to be connected yeah. to one another. And cherish the ones you love the most. That's right. Mm -hmm. Up next, we're talking reparations. Show us the money. Give it, and I'm, I'm about to move to San Francisco. <laughs> you tell your mama I'm on my way. You think I'm playing. You want to listen out for this story. We'll tell you which cities are ready to start paying up and which ones are just getting started. You're watching Fox Soul's Black Report. I'm going to San Francisco. Come on, Golden Gate. I'm about to move. <laughs> Welcome back, soulmates. You ready to talk about reparations? I am. St. Louis Mayor Tashara Jones advances her executive order to establish a reparations commission. That's right. The volunteer commission aims to analyze the city's history of race-based harms and current injustices. Reparations models are gaining traction nationwide with Evanston, Illinois, becoming the first city mm -hmm. to offer reparations to black residents in 2021. California formed a nine member reparations task force in 2020 and Congress, Congress member Sheila Jackson Lee introduced HR 40 in 2019, a bill for a federal commission to study and develop reparations proposals for African-Americans. Is, is it against the law to claim residency? <laughs> In, in all Louis, these states in, in that are starting to get it together. Right. I mean, you know, this is very encouraging. It I mean, is. You know, reparations is really about it's repairing the harm, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, what I'm really enjoying about this movement is that different municipalities, different levels of government are thinking about thinking creatively mm -hmm. about different ways in which they can repair the harm. And I think I'd like to think, you know, that's fundamentally a good thing for this country. My only concern is that I think hopefully they all can get on cold with one particular policy or way of going about uh, distributing. And so everybody gets a fair shake at uh, the reparations. I think, you know, with each state or city going about it a different way, I'm hoping none of us uh, get, get lost in the sauce or fall between the cracks with what, you know, what, what, what we're owed or what's decided that we're owed. That's my only, there seems to be a lot of different ways of trying to go about it. It's, it's a hard um, issue to tackle, if you will. And on the other side of it, I just want to make sure that everybody, all of our soulmates are taken care of the way that, that they should be. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I worry about is, you know, what happens, you know, if, for example, California uh, uh, passes a reparations bill that includes money or San Francisco does mm -hmm. and, you know, folks are entitled to five million dollars, however way in which they decide that. Um, what happens when, you know, people decide to hold it up in the courts 
We've seen this happen with regard to student debt cancellation. We've seen this happen with regard to the farm bill. And so that's my only worry is that, you know, whatever is done, I hope that it doesn't get tied up in courts for years and well, years. Well, I shouldn't have wouldn't tie my money up. <laughs> San Francisco, speaking of which, is looking to pay out $5 million in reparations by recommending reparations be paid to every eligible black adult in the city. Now, the goal is to aid in eliminating personal debt and tax burdens, providing guaranteed annual incomes of at least 97K for 250 years and being able to buy homes in San Francisco for just a dollar a family. Those who, uh, those were some of the uh, more than 100 recommendations made by a city appointed reparations committee and that committee hasn't done an analysis of the cost of the proposals, but critics have slammed the plan as financially and politically impossible. And I, I can see why critics would side with that being sort of kind of impossible. Though Some of those are big asks. However, <laughs> you know, what they've done to us was a terrible tragedy and, yeah. the, and the continued fallout from generations to generations. You just can't take away what's been done for 400 plus years. So the ask should be big and astronomical in my opinion. Well, and, and, and mind you, when people say, oh, it's financially and politically impossible. Well, once upon a time when we were talking about climate change, there's a lot of people that saw that as a fringe issue. Mm. They didn't see the government investing billions and billions of dollars in fighting climate change. And so in our lifetime, we've seen an example on a number of different issues where people would say it's impossible, you know, for us to pass that politically or it's impossible, you know, for for us to make that kind of investment. Think of gay marriage, for example. Once upon a time, the idea of that being the law of the land, mm -hmm. you know, that was out of the question. And so look at how far we've come in the conversation around reparations. It's yeah. gone from being a fringe conversation to a mainstream conversation. You have, you know, major leaders in government at every level, you know, that are looking at this issue and not just as a as a as an academic exercise, but uh, they're looking at how to practically get this done. Well, they can gather that money to send to Ukraine. So I'm, I figure they can gather it and, and, and help us folks who uh, have been in need for a long time for well, a long time well, speaking, and have deserved the help. Well, speaking of folks that, that have been in need a whole long time, former Mississippi Representative Kathy Sykes is speaking out on efforts in Mississippi by the majority white legislature to create courts with appointed mm -hmm. rather than elected judges. The efforts would also expand patrols by state police inside the majority black capital city of Jackson. Sykes calling it Jim Crow 2.0 and says people in other parts of the U.S. should pay attention to what's happening in Mississippi because ideas in one state can spread to others pretty quickly. The Mississippi House and Senate this year have passed different versions of bills uh, dealing with police and courts in Jackson, which has the highest percentage of black residents of any major U.S. city. Negotiators from the two chambers are expected to work on final versions of the bills in the next two weeks. All right, time now for Today in Black History for Women's Her Story Month. We honor Dr. Kismika 
uh, Corbett. Dr. Corbett's team developed the Moderna uh, COVID-19 vaccine, which would not only prove to be one of the greatest tools in battling one of the worst pandemics since uh, the 1918 Spanish flu, but would change vaccine science forever. Her groundbreaking work marked a turning point in the global pandemic. That's right, and since developing the vaccine that has saved countless lives around the world, Dr. Corbett has continued to make an impact as a public figure in the conversation around vaccine hesitancy and misinformation. All right, still ahead, she's taking risks and defying all odds. Hollywood has an it girl when it comes to stunts. That's right, we'll introduce you to Carrie Brunans, the woman behind some of our favorite scenes uh, uh, on the silver screen. Don't go anywhere, you're watching Foxhole's Black Report. Welcome back to Fox News Black Report. Michelle Obama is taking aim at former President Donald Trump as she reflects on her time at the White House and having to leave when Trump won. Mm, she started off by saying that she and Barack felt a sense of obligation to not only uh, the country, but to the black community while being in office and says what Trump represented was totally different from the legacy they built. Take a listen. So we were saying goodbye to the staff and all the people who helped to raise them. There were tears. There was that emotion. But then to sit on that stage and watch the the opposite of what we represented on display. There was no diversity. There was no color on that stage. There was no reflection of the broader sense of America. Yeah, and you know, our, they they kept a good face, but every now and again, you could see you could see every the face cracking. Like, the whole time. I, I, from what? From from when? They kept it very presidential, but every now and again, you I, saw you saw Sister Michelle. I think Barack kept it very presidential. Think, I think you, I think Michelle did the best she could. I said she dipped in and out. Right, you know, and from the moment that you know, <laughs> former President Trump and former First Lady Melania Trump pulled up to the White House where they do the gift like, exchange, mm. faces were already. Tight, tight, right? And then so by the time they were in the motorcade, they made it to the platform. Michelle's looking around and Michelle, you know, the look on her face mm -hmm. was the look that a lot of us had as we were watching this inauguration. Are like, you what kidding happened? Me? Who did it? You know, uh, what is going yeah. on here? Is this real? Somebody pinch me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was quite uh, quite a day <laughs> to say the least. Quite a day and quite a four years. That's right. All right. We're excited to introduce our next exceptional guest, a trail blazing sister who is a stunt woman uh, breaking barriers and inspiring the next generation in the industry uh, and contributing to iconic films like Black Panther, Lovecraft, Country um, and Avengers Endgame. We're talking about the talented Carrie Bernans as she joins us to talk uh, more about her captivating journey and uh, to learn about the world of stunts and, and that type of representation in Hollywood. Welcome to the show. We appreciate you having uh, being here for Thank us. you. Yes, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with y'all, and I'm loving the segment. Y'all are killing it. Thank you. 
Thank you. We, we, we just wrapped up, you know, Oscars week and we see everybody in front of the camera. Rarely do we get a chance to talk to folks, you know, behind the camera and or in, in the backdrop making these uh, films real and these actors and what they do in these films real. So you've worked on numerous high profile projects and you've made a significant impact in the industry. Share with us some of those challenges that you faced uh, being a black stunt woman uh, in particular and how you've kind of uh, overcome to a achieve uh, this uh, amazing success in your career at this point? Absolutely. As a black stunt woman, I've definitely faced some challenges um, in comparison to, uh, let's say, a white stunt woman. Mm -hmm. But I would say the majority of those challenges were faced with the previous people that actually got us into stunts, like black stunt women that were able to um, gain their skills and take risk and was willing to just step up to the plate. I think back let's just say in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we did not commonly see a lot of black sun women exist because there was a lot of paint downs going down. For some reason, there was a sense that black people could not um, drag drift cars or they couldn't ride motorcycles the way that a white person did. But they broke barriers that then allowed me to come in and also show myself. One of the things that I guess I appreciate the most is that when people underestimate me or think that they um, can't find a black person to do a certain stunt, like a horse or motorcycle mm -hmm. or a fight, it's to show them that it does exist and you can. Yeah. So I think that for the most part, it's about continuing to prove ourselves in some ways to show that we have it on record, on file, mm -hmm. by film, by camera. And then when we show up to set, suggest kill it, um, which, kind of sucks you don't want to always have to approve yourself you want to say like this is what i can do and somebody right. to believe you and just go out there and do it but you know what i like when a person underestimates me and i can show them that i'm more than what they thought that you know i wasn't absolutely and, and when you talk about i mean we are the epitome of agility and strength and and creativity and flexibility so to think that that would be questioned in in your line of work is is absolutely nuts to me so so with the increasing uh, visibility of black stunt uh, professionals like yourself what advice would you give to uh, aspiring stunt performers uh, of color who want to break into the industry and and do what you do it's fascinating absolutely as me. Yeah. <laughs> First off, I would tell them that I'm happy that they know it exists. One of the things that I wish I knew is that it exists when I was younger because mm -hmm. I used to be out in the streets riding motorcycles and dirt bikes and all this stuff flipping around. Um, but number two is that you have to work hard. No matter what part of the industry that you're in, you're always going to be you know, competing against the next person. And it's not to say you're in competition with a friend or whatever the case may be, but the people that ultimately achieve success in this industry, they're very disciplined mm -hmm. and they're always practicing multiple things. So they're not just skilled in one area. If you want a longevity in this career, yes, we do have some some people that focus specifically on driving or specifically on water work. Mm -hmm. But if you want longevity and to be able to work in majority of the projects and sets and films, et cetera, then I would say to go ahead and get your scuba diving like um, certifications like learn to feel comfortable in water in case you have an opportunity to do water mm -hmm. but if that's not your thing also don't press it but you know if you're going to learn fights then also learn rows and then also maybe learn how to do like one or two backflips or tricks if you don't do backflips then make sure that you're really 
good at wire work. So then they can put you on wire and you can do the flips on there and it's able to assist you. Um, just like the well-roundedness. When you think about uh, actual, let's say, when you're CEO of a company, for example, you know, you have to have like several different skill sets in order to be able to lead and to take charge and to sit. And then the last thing I would do, I would say mm-hmm. uh, around like physical preparedness and having that skill set is then to pick up something else. Sure. Like, as you can see, the acting role that I have here. Mm-hmm. I'm also an actor as well. So sometimes you have an opportunity to do acting in stunts where it's a high risk stunt that they actually want to put someone in that mm-hmm. also knows other skills, you know. Yeah, so. which makes you a double threat. You can act and you can go do the stunt. Yeah. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about how you've impacted uh, so many children through your nonprofit foundation. Tell us a little bit more uh, about that effort. Absolutely. So I have a nonprofit called CBC Foundation. Mm-hmm. It was started basically because um, when I was younger, my mom was 17. She had me six months until I was about 15 years old. Mm-hmm. My mom was an incredible, amazing, hardworking person. But one of the things was is that um, we had a lot of organizations and nonprofits that gave back to us. What I wanted to do started with 10 kids our first year, mm-hmm. and last year it was over 300 kids that amazing. got to participate. Amazing, amazing. Paying it forward, we love you for that. Before we wrap you up, uh, I heard in my ear you were about to be somebody's mama. Is this your first go around, second time? We're about eight months. You ready to drop in a minute? How you handle? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm taking you're not doing too many stunts nowadays, Miss Carrie. <laughs> I'm not. I did some about four and a half, four months ago, I guess. I don't know. I took my baby on a real ride. Girl. I know it sounds crazy, but um, I mean, I was. I was drifting in the car and it was stick shift and they really needed somebody and it was for a friend. So I did it, but I am on my first child. So crazy. So shocking. So exciting. He is doing stunts in my belly. So I'm excited um, to introduce him to the world and excited about his journey in this life. And just like, you know, adding another, stripe to the layer, I guess, about being a mama too. I always wanted to be a mom. Absolutely. I didn't want to expect it, but it's exciting. We got to follow you across your social media platform so we can see uh, baby Bernans coming to this world. We we love you. We appreciate you. Thank you for just representing uh, in this area. And we got to have you back to talk to you again. Carrie Bernans, stunt woman extraordinaire. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you all God bless on that baby girl. Baby boy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. The Apollo and D-Nice announced the special Harlem Renaissance-themed third anniversary of Club Quarantine, celebrating community, connection, and culture. On Saturday, March 18th at 8 p.m., this once-in-a-lifetime evening will head to the Apollo's historic stage as a revolutionary virtual club that safely brought millions of us together to experience community amidst isolation. Since March 2020, D-Nice's Club Quarantine has been a global rhythmic respite, a multi-generational and multi-genre experience. Club Quarantine is a global celebration of music, life and love and it was just so dope it was so needed uh it just you know catapulted him into a whole nother hemisphere Mm because he was already that dude in regards to you know the whole hip-hop scene and 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 djing and 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 coming up i do believe it was uh mc light and it was just so well needed and from the pandemic so much was birth versus was was dope that's right you know um i think my favorite one was i think erica and jill and and jill scott i think that versus is still going on (laughs) that thing was about five 
five hours long. I like the Izzy's Earth, yeah. Wind, and Fire. Uh, Mary, Mary, Mary Riley. Did you? Well, that was that call. That was the cause <laughs> for a lot of um, interesting um, color commentary. <laughs> but so much, you know, that the pandemic is going to always be what it's going to yeah. be. Um, challenge yourself to find what was positive in the pandemic, That's and right. that was definitely something positive. You're absolutely right. And there's more to come right here on Fox Souls Black Report. When we return, it's Black Excellence. It's Black Excellence time. The Black Eyewear Company that's making history Ooh. with their newest deal. You're going to wait. want to wait around for this when you're watching Fox Souls Black Report. Mm -hmm. Sell it, sister. Sell it. <laughs> <laughs> Founders of a black-owned eyewear line are making history with a Nickelodeon licensing deal. Nancy Harris and Tracy Green's company, Vontel, is the first of its kind to establish a partnership with Paramount and Nickelodeon. Their licensing deal allows them to exclusively make fashion-forward eyewear products for kids using popular characters like SpongeBob, SquarePants, Baby Shark, and Rugrats. Despite launching during the pandemic, Vontel has been able to thrive with more people looking to eyewear as a way to show off their personality during virtual meetings. I know a little something about that. The mm -hmm. company is quickly becoming a leader in the eyewear business and with one and with over one billion people worldwide in need of eyeglasses, Vontel is excited to enter the industry at the right time with their handcrafted ethnic design. You go ladies, congrats on that. For the full rundown on today's stories and more, you can access Fox Souls video on demand on any of our partners. You can even access past shows and all that other good content. Make sure you download the Fox Soul app. It is absolutely free. Mm -hmm. We enjoyed you today. We Thanks did. for joining us. We I'm did. Courtney Hicks. And I'm the Cordelai Corte. Until next time, Soul Mates, be sure to stay lifted. Absolutely. <laughs>